one of my mentors used to say this to me. He's like, as you try to scale a business, one of the huge impediments of that is that you got people going in different directions. He's like, one of the really fundamental things you need to do is develop a purpose and some values so that everybody, as you used to say, all the fish are swimming in the same direction. It's a relatively simple thing to solve, I guess, but it can create huge problems. And so the other thing that's really valuable with values is it gives people tools to make decisions without asking. Everyone, welcome to Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and techniques they use to build great companies and organizations. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to Mark Tier. Mark is founder and CEO of Black Spectacles. Basically, it's a really cool company that's helping architects um, become licensed and also uh, learn new skills. So thanks so much, Mark, for joining me. Happy to join. Happy to be here, man. So I think it'd be great to start just a little bit from the beginning. You can kind of walk us through your career trajectory so far and how you got to starting Black Spectacles. So uh, I don't know, like many uh, of you who might be listening, um, for some reason, I knew I wanted to be an architect, you know, when I was, you know, whatever, in eighth grade or something. So I followed that through high school. And as I like to say, I sort of entrepreneured my way into the uh, School of Architecture at uh, University of Illinois in Champaign. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, I uh, graduated there. I practiced at uh, a firm called Leggett Architects. Uh, They're a medium-sized firm, did a lot of schoolwork. I uh, went to Clemson for my master's and then um, got out, worked at Leggett for a few more years, and then finished my career uh, at Gensler in the Chicago office. That's the career trajectory. What's sort of interesting is when I made that transition from between the two firms, it's funny, at the time, uh, I had a, a review with my boss at my first firm, and he told me, you know, you might want to get involved in the AIA just to get to know some people. And uh, so I went, you know, dutifully back to my uh, my seat went to AI Chicago's website and uh, found the Young Architects Forum as a part of AI Chicago. <laughs> it's funny, I went to a couple of meetings and before I knew it, they asked me to, to be the chair of the group, uh, which was really funny. At first, I wasn't really sure. You know, really one of the sort of luckiest things that happened to me, uh, I ran that with uh, a couple of peers for a couple of years and then uh, did some teaching at IIT in their School of Architecture. Those experiences at AI Chicago and IIT those sort of sat over my time at Gensler. Uh, they were just things I did on the side. And it was really those three experiences that kind of gave me the, let's say, the visibility into the profession that helped me see the problem, right? And as I like to say a lot is architects, you know, we're supposed to know all these tools, but nobody wants to teach us, right? Schools don't want to teach you. It's very, it's very much a faux pas to teach software in school, yet you need to know those tools when you get out, uh, you get into it in office, expect you to know those, you know, a variety of tools and stuff. So, so we started Black Spectacles around that problem of software learning. I think the original idea sort of surfaced around 2006. That's, you know, that's when BIM started to become quite popular. Parametric design tools, again, became popular. Seemingly the, um, you know, visualization tools continue to get more and more and more complex. And I was in, you know, the biggest firm in the world, great resources. And I was still sunk. Uh, my students were sunk. People in other firms who I'd met through AI Chicago were sunk. So it, it seemed like there was a problem around software learning. And so that's how we started. What, well, how would you then kind of describe then the pitch of, of Black Spectacles today? What's an interesting time for us. Uh, we started out, uh, you know, our tagline for a long time has been online learning for architecture and design, right? 
we started with software learning. Then we added test prep. You know, within a young business, you you try some ideas out and you sort of see what works. For us, uh, test prep has really taken off. I would say that um, we've had a tremendous amount of uh, people who we've helped get licensed and a lot of penetration into, into the market. Half the people who took the test uh, in the last year use Black Spectacles, uh, which is something I'm incredibly proud of that, that we've uh, been able to help that many people get through the licensing exams. As you guys know, so many people say, myself included, it's annoying to take all the exams, but at the end of the experience, most people walk away and say they feel like they became a better architect. It makes me proud to know that we've been able to help you know, that volume of people. But what's interesting about this time today is with many businesses, you sort of start with an idea and you follow it for a while. And then you sort of search for your purpose, right? Like, what are we doing? You know, and like in 2018, I sort of woke up and I was like, wow, we have this really successful education business for architecture. You know, what are we doing? Where do we want to go? You know, like, what's our next move, our next step? At that point, we didn't really have clarity on that. You know, we didn't really have a, let's say, a core purpose, you know, of, of what we were trying to achieve. And so after some soul searching and a lot of brainstorming and talking and discussions, um, we sort of discovered our purpose, which was really about helping architects more broadly, not just around education or around test prep. Our aspirations are really around helping architects through education and inspiration sort of thrive throughout the entirety of their career. And what was really cool about, you know, sort of coming to that conclusion was that suddenly all these ideas opened up for where we might go next. So we are on the edge of launching this new platform called Spectacular to help with just that. Um, it'll ultimately be sort of the professional you know, network for firms and for architects. But then on the flip side, sticking with the educational side of things, a couple of really great ideas fell out around professional learning, which we're pursuing. So it's an interesting time uh, for the business. And frankly, it's a time of transition, you know, where people, a lot of people know us right now is, is uh, a lot of focus on test prep. And over the next 10 years, I expect that to expand uh, to really focus on career support for architects. That's awesome. And how, how big is the team right now that's helping uh, you run the ship? Yeah, we're, uh, we just became uh, 21 full-time employees. The idea for Black Spectacles, we, I started working on it September 2010. We launched in January of 2012. So I've been working on this for 10 and a half years. So it's a long haul, as you guys probably know. Yeah. And, and how is the, what are the functional areas of the business? How is it structured? I think like a lot of organizations, you know, we have a, we have a marketing and a sales uh, component, uh, which help to create awareness and drive individual uh, sales as well as group sales. Uh, we have an administrative side and then, and then we have the product side, that product side, you know, today we're, you know, exclusively an ed tech company. So, um, you know, we have a, a great group of people who work on creating the educational content. And then we have another group of people who, you know, they produce the, you know, the software and, you know, the web experience and the app experience. Very cool. When it comes to the kind of mission that you were talking about that kind of opened up the opportunity for you to, you know, for, for Spectacular to come out, I just want to maybe dive a little bit more into the details. For context, we had, um, we've had a couple conversations recently on in best practice where we talk a lot about uh, the mission side and how important it is to create a mission statement for yourself so that, you know, e- even if it's just a, a mission statement for a team, it doesn't have to be the whole entire company, right? Um, it just provides that that direction. And it gives, if anything, it gives, uh, like you, I think you, you kind of highlighted it, it gave you the, uh, the permission to potentially the kind of the opportunity to think broader than maybe yeah. where you were initially thinking. Yeah. Um, 
And you mentioned education and inspiration is kind of the two the two things that you're you're interested in. Yeah. Was there a defining moment where that kind of really clicked for you, where it's like, oh, okay, this is what we're actually about. This is what we're really really doing. Yeah. There's there's a couple of good stories here. First of all, and just to give some examples of why it's it's a it's a useful tool. This idea of a purpose at the time. I mean, there was an open question for us on the table. We were serving architects and we were providing them with primarily test prep, right? So there's an important question there strategically. Where do you want to go? You know, do you want to become test prep for every design industry? Or do you want to stay in your industry and do you want to support them in a more, in a deeper way? And so the purpose is really, it's really a soul searching exercise, to be honest with you. It's sort of like, what do you want to achieve in your life? You know, where, do, yeah. where are you trying to go? And so I knew that my passion personally uh, was in architecture. You know, it's funny, I, uh, going back to that first story I shared, when I was the chair of the Young Architects Forum, one of the events that people had been doing for a while and I sort of just picked up was like a monthly happy hour. And so I continued that. We, we did it, of course, every month. And, you know, usually like 10 to 30 people would show up depending on what, whatever was going on. And, you know, I was a chair, so, you know, people would, you know, when they would show up, they would look for me, they'd shake my hand and say, say hello, and you know, we'd get to talking a little bit. And, you know, over time, uh, what started to happen is a lot of people would come up to me and say, hey, I'm looking for a job. How do I find a job? I want to get into this firm. You know, I just got to Chicago. What are the good firms? So they asked me all these questions. I, you know, as I looked back on it, you know, when we were thinking about all this question of a purpose, when I looked back on it, I realized, man, I've got like... I got really excited about that, those questions. I got really excited about trying to support people and figure out like, okay, well, tell me what kind of culture you want to work in. What kind of work do you want to do? And I had just gone through the, the process of searching for a, a new firm. So I had, it was super fresh off, the, off of that question. So I had a lot of resources and I was just excited about it. And I think the other thing that kind of went into that was I didn't have a whole lot of career support in my career trajectory. Yeah you know, from getting into college to finding my first job, even to wandering into AI Chicago and, and finding my way into Gensler, you know, you could sort of argue that many of those were flukes. And yet while I was both helping out at AI Chicago and observing young folks come into Gensler, I saw people who were getting support. I saw mm-hmm. people who, when I was at that stage in my career, they were way ahead of where I was. And so the whole exercise about like, you know, figuring out I guess what my passion is, and based on, on that, if there's anything related to our business, it all just sort of clicked. You know, it was like, it's got to be bigger than test prep. And frankly, I think there's an opportunity to do something bigger than, than, uh, than even education, which is a big thing. And for sure, you know, wanted to stay focused in architecture. So just knowing that I had a personal story that I think connected really strongly to this idea, it all just sort of, it really did kind of come together, like I say, in 2018. Once you have that, it's like anything else. You guys know that when, um, especially in architecture, you know, if you have a project with, a, with no rules, no boundaries, you know, it's really hard. With no, yeah. no constraints, it's in, almost impossible. But once you get those constraints, then you sort of find the space that you have to work within. And so as soon as we clarified that purpose, boom, it was like the ideas just fell right out of the purpose. It was awesome. And so far, it's been really helpful because having that, it's helped us stay focused. You know, it's helped us this is our purpose. This is where we're going. I get calls all the time, you know, for various people and someone's got an idea about something that's kind of adjacent to what we're doing. Hey, there's probably like this million dollar business over here. 
And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're going over here. Maybe one day when we're done with this, I'll come back to you. But for now, we're going here. So that's really helpful. Yeah, that's really critical. I mean, if even, um, you know, sort of behind the curtain monograph itself, there's a lot of companies that we look at and we, we admittedly do not want to become the kind of very general purpose tool in general. And that's a very, I really resonate with that point of like, you are at a point where you could either go very vertical, which a lot of, you know, if you think about our, for, for those that don't know, monograph is, is a holistic project management and real-time budget and stuff like that. But essentially you, you have the option to kind of go into other industries, right. And say, Oh, well, practice management can be for law firms or it can be for all these things. But we primarily because of the store, we all, a lot of us come from, I say the majority of the, of the company right now has a background in the industry. We just wanted to kind of go deep into the problems that it's right. I mean, there's still a lot of opportunity to just help the industry move yeah. forward. I'm very curious for you, how does that reflect back into how you think about even things like hiring? We talked a little bit earlier on, you know, while we were prepping for this, talking about how both our companies have moved remote I know after COVID, um, the impact that that has had on both of our businesses from a recruitment perspective. I'm curious, like, how do you use that mission to help you in any way? Does it, is it act as a guiding light for you or does it help you in making that decision for who to hire as well? Yeah, that's kind of interesting. So it's funny, you know, the 21st person who we, we literally hired on two, two days ago is the first architect we've hired in 10 years, uh, you know, as a full-time employee. You know, a lot of people ask us that question. They're like, um, do I need to be an architect in order to work here? And my answer is always, you need to be whatever discipline we're looking for, like whether it's marketing or sales or engineering, whatever it is, you need to be an expert in that. That's sort of the, the key thing there. I wouldn't say so much that it's the purpose that we use to sort of vet or validate candidates by. We use that to explain, I think, why we're unique. I mean, it is who, who we are and what we do. So it's just sort of a basic thing we need to share. I would say values, though, is, is actually something that we use, that we created about the same time back in 2018. Our core values, which, you know, I've worked in places before that had core values, and you just paste them on the wall, and that's about the end of that. But at our place, we try to take them really seriously. And in fact, so I made an offer to a guy yesterday, and I did it again. We always start our offer by talking about values. And actually what we do is we let them know in advance, hey, these are the values of our organization. Um, we ask everyone to live these values at work. And then I describe to them that I've asked everyone on the team as we bring them in and after they've had a little bit of time to sort of kind of get their sea legs, if they're willing to live those values and if they're willing to hold each other accountable or their teammates, including me, accountable to living those values. That's one of the things we use to sort of evaluate candidates I would say that they all, they serve a somewhat similar purpose, which is whether it's a core purpose or whether it's values, one of the huge, and again, <laughs> I don't mean to uh, pretend like I'm, you know, the grand poobah here and that I have a million years of experience. Assuming we, we won't include my DJ business or my paper route, this is my first CEO job. So I guess- uh, They're valid. They're I'm, very I'm valid. I'm still a new guy. But, I was a I was a manager uh, in high school of a, of a of a video rental place. I I still think that was an f- incredibly formative <laughs> experience. So it, it's all valid. But what I can say is this: is that um, what I've learned and what we've been doing for the last few years is we really put that purpose and those values up front. There's some practical reasons for it. Like it does a couple of things. One of my mentors used to say this to me. He's like, as you try to scale a business, one of the huge impediments of that is that you got people going in different directions. 
He's like, one of the really fundamental things you need to do is develop a purpose and some values so that everybody, as he used to say, all the fish are swimming in the same direction. It's a relatively simple thing to solve, I guess, but it can create huge problems. The other thing that's really valuable with values is it gives people tools to make decisions without asking. I had uh, my director of marketing, we ran a Black Friday sale like we normally do. Um, she had just started and she brought a, you know, I'd probably run that sale by myself or, you know, mostly by myself, probably five times. And the approach was basically the same and it was successful. Every year was a little bit better. And she came in and uh, she wanted to pursue a different direction. I kind of grilled her about it. I said, yeah, but what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? And she had wonderful answers at each one of those questions. And then the last one, I was, was sort of a question like, yeah, but what if it doesn't work? And her response was, she recited one of my values back to, or one of our values back to me. She's like, yeah, well, you know, we're taking a calculated risk, uh, which is one of our values. She's like, if it doesn't work, here's what I'm going to do. So she had already sort of contemplated that. Our values as a tool to help her make a decision that she knew it was an impenetrable decision. As soon as she said that, I was like, carry on. <laughs> it was really funny. It was awesome. Great. That's awesome. So that, that value sort of reminds me of, uh, of one that I, I'm a big fan of, which is like Jeff Bezos's this idea of, two, of there's two different types of doors, which is nice that it's architectural. There's like one-way doors and two-way doors. And uh, every decision falls under one. So what a one-way door is, it's a, a decision you can't reverse easily. You just go through that door and there's no looking back. So what he says is you take, at least in Amazon, what they do is they take their time with those type of decisions, yeah. but they move really, really, really fast with two-way door decisions where they can kind of ah. easily reverse it. So an example might be like changing the website, color, you know, layout, reversible. I mean, if you look at the impact of that, how many people visit, it's not really yeah. going to make a big dent, but it's a worthwhile experiment to take versus like, we're going to change I don't know, something radically different about the company that's like, okay, we're, there's no looking back. We should be, be, be a little bit more thoughtful. It's just, the, the idea of calculated risk is kind of, uh, it, I mean, it's just, it, it's freeing. I mean, for everybody, they don't have to look at you to be like, can I do this? And if anything, what you want in your team is just a fully autonomous organization, right? You don't want to be necessarily in the weeds about every single decision that's being made because then you can't move fast enough if you need sure. to. And so that, that's really great to hear kind of like how, how the at least there's like a like the value system is in place to help you filter out um, or like find those candidates that are really going to match the business. From like now looking within the industry, because I mentioned a little bit about the, the remote work aspect of it, how has this been a benefit to your business in general, and how could you project it being benefit for other business for like the industry at large being remote? Yeah, I'll share a couple of stories first. So I don't know for us in terms of like our day to day work. We already had the meeting cadence and the tools and all the stuff that we sort of needed in order to like, you know, everybody just went home on Friday, took their monitor and their keyboard and their mouse. And we just picked up at work on Monday. I think it was maybe March 17th, whatever it was, right? So number one for us, in our experience, it wasn't a big deal to go home. But when we got to, so that's March. So we got to August and we started wondering like, man, like one of the biggest roadblocks we have is finding great people to join our team. And I mean, we can find people, but to find great people is hard. And we're sort of at the stage of business now where we're searching for great leaders. We've gotten pretty good at, at finding great 
teammates, but to find uh, great leaders is something that we've been working through and trying to get really good at. We're starting to get good at it. So thinking about that roadblock, uh, we started asking the question, well, what if we became fully remote, right? One of the things that we did, and so I'm sharing my story because maybe there's parts of it that could be useful to the various people who are listening. So we, we actually did a whole company brainstorming session. And when I say whole company, you know, we're small, so that's pretty easy to do. But we did a brainstorming session and just a good old fashioned, what are the positives? What are the negatives, right? And everybody contributed and everybody wrote the positives and negatives on the same board, which we then discussed and sort of simplified into and sort of, they were all positives except mm-hmm. for one thing, which is essentially the personal relationships and the personal connection that you get from being in person. And so admittedly, you know, we thought a lot about that. And uh, there's a company here in Chicago called um, uh, Spikeball. You guys may know it. Uh, I'm a part of a, a group that uh, they're, they're a part of, and they gave a, a talk about them being a fully remote company for the last few years. And he talked about how every quarter they would literally rent. He was like a 30 person company, just about. And he's like, every quarter we rent a house somewhere and we get on a plane together as a whole company and we get together we don't do work. Like we basically go on a vacation every quarter as a team. And he's like, yeah, it's like 90% not work and 10% work. And maybe we work on our values in our pajamas one Sunday morning or something. He's like, but outside of that, it's just fun. It's hiking or whatever, whatever they do. He's like, that really creates relationships. It creates experiences. It creates connection uh, between people on the team. And so, um, I mean, it's what is, it's January, 2021. So, you know, we're, everyone's still locked down. You know, we really, we haven't done anything in terms of travel at this point. But once people uh, are vaccinated and feel comfortable traveling, my expectation is that we'll give that a shot and see how that goes. I think if I'm super honest about it, you know, it's still an experiment. I know there's certainly companies before us who've done it, but I know that there's a lot of companies going to be joining us. So having a company that's fully remote and having a company that's fully in person and having a company that's in between all three options, none of them are perfect. So for us, it seemed like a, a really good, uh, again, calculated risk. You know, It's already started to solve the biggest problem we have in the business. Um, I think we're 21 people. I think we've hired like six people since we made that decision, seven maybe, um, including a great leader. So it's already producing results. Uh, again, at the biggest problem that we have in our business. And again, like, you know, we're an educational tech business. So, you know, we're not laying CMUs all day long. So it's not like we the nature of our business allows it to, to happen. So, yeah, so that's sort of the, the, the process that we've gone through. And, I, you know, I know, especially with architecture firms, it's, it's different. There are some, you know, stronger demands around, you know, being able to collaborate. And, and uh, I remember sitting in, uh, in the office and, you know, someone pulls up, you know, uh, right next to you and starts sketching and those sketches, and then you have a thought and then they have a thought and then the sketches evolves and, and then you get in SketchUp and you started doing some modeling and then they, put the trace paper over your monitor and sketch on it, like all of that stuff, all that physical sort of interaction. It's a way to do it. Uh, there's probably other ways to do it. It probably doesn't have to be that way. You can still collaborate uh, virtually. Um, I do it on a regular basis, but admittedly, you know, we're not sketching our things, but you know, it's 2021. Uh, we can all sketch on something that someone can see, you know, from a million miles away. So, you know, every organization has to, I'm in a group of a different group with um, seven other CEOs and, it's fascinating to see the range of, uh, of thoughts about this. You know, one guy runs a manufacturing company. There's no chance he's going remote. And other people have tech companies and, and they're very, very committed to being a person. Some of them are halfway. So 
it is an interesting time, as we all know. And I would say that you know, that's where we've landed so far. That's great. And, and you said, I think earlier you had said that uh, the majority of them are still in, in the Chicago area, though, for now, right? Or You know, I honestly haven't done, the, I haven't done a, a check on that recently, but it's probably, it's getting pretty close to 50-50, I would say. But yeah, I mean, of the, you know, if it's, if it's 50-50, that means half the people are in Chicago and half are scattered around. The majority of us, I would say, are in San Francisco at the moment, but that's that's changing pretty quickly. I myself is in St. Pete, Florida, ah. director of our customer success is in Miami. So at least there's a Florida contingent. Uh, we might have a, a kind of New York contingent, and we definitely have a Seattle contingent right now. We're seeing those same contingents kind of, we have one in uh, around Denver area. We have another one emerging around New York. It's it's actually one in California now. It's funny how, it's, uh, how that's happening. Yeah, I mean, I do, I do believe that for at least for architecture firms, the workflows exist to be able to unlock that kind of collaboration that you're describing, I mean, whether it's like Bluebeam sessions or I think there's there's tools out there like Drawboard or even Miro. You know, you could probably use that for schematic design, right? Where someone is just copy pasting screenshots from their model and someone else is sketching on top of them yep. uh, with an iPad. So I think it's about it's sort of like how do you design for those different opportunities and but. I think what's very interesting, and I think you kind of touched upon this earlier about what would support structure exists in a way for a firm for this um, in general, is that to me is, is kind of fascinating because you know we talk, internally we talk a little bit about what we call like practice operations that at a certain scale a firm needs to really think a lot about how the business is structured operationally mm-hmm. across the different functions, not just like in silos and. It seems like, you know, I think most recently you have like design technology as a group that's now within larger firms that sort of handles maybe half of it's about education on the on the software side. The other half is project based. I'm curious from your perspective, since you've now expanded more to this kind of like more holistic education, mm-hmm. what are the opportunities to maybe fill in for what doesn't exist today, which is, you know, that kind of support structure in most firms where People are constantly, you know, in an ideal scenario, there'd be a team just focused completely on, you know, knowledge within a firm that's like helping everybody grow through courses, through all this other stuff. So in light of that, the fact that doesn't exist, what are the kind of opportunities for education that no one is really addressing yet that maybe you're interested in? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I guess I have a couple thoughts. It's funny. There's a story I tell all the time. I was working on this uh, corporate headquarters building and um, we were in schematic design and we were starting to move into, you know, design development and kind of zero in on, in this case, uh, what the facade was going to, like the facade material. We were sort of settling on uh, precast as precast concrete as, you know, kind of the facade you know, system, let's say. My design director who was also, yeah, he was a design director at the time. <laughs> I remember I was sitting in front of my computer and we sat right next to each other and on the table here, we got to a moment and he said to me, he's like, really? You don't know how precast concrete works? And I was like, uh, nope. I don't know. He's kind of a jerk about it. And, um, and then he's sort of cozied up to the, to the table and he sat there and he gave me a lesson in how they make precast concrete. And he explained how they make the forms and, Usually, you know, if, if they do it in the shop, they build these forms and they pour it face down. And, you know, if you want reveals, you got to do this, you got to build them in negative. And, 
And then, you know, we talked about, you know, all the, all the different aspects, you know, you get the insulation in there and then we talked about panel sizes and why the panel sizes were what they it just gave me the whole, like literally 45 minutes in precast concrete. And, you know, I was a young architect, you know, I'm sure I knew what the word precast concrete was like most architects do when they get out of school, but I had no idea how you make it. Right. And like that moment or that experience of him teaching me in real time, how that all works so that I could then go do my job, which was to build, you know, model components of precast walls and get them in the Revit model or get them in the SketchUp model and begin to work out, you know, the basic wall sections and blah, blah, blah. There was just-in-time training, right? And uh, as I thought about that a lot, you know, I remember even at the first firm I was at, you know, there was a, you know, a gentleman who was a lot older than everybody else. And, and he was like the guy who you would just go to you know, when you needed to solve a detail and you didn't know what the hell you were doing, you were like two years out of school. You know, you went to this guy and sat at, at his desk for sage advice and wisdom about how Mason, I'll never forget him explaining to me, you know, how you need to uh, develop your dimensions uh, or the geometry of your building so that they hit on, you know, masonry unit, whatever modules, right? I remember, right, right. It, 12 foot eight works, but 12 foot six doesn't work, right? It needed to be a variant of of 16 inches or eight inches or whatever. So like throughout my whole career, what I've realized now is that, you know, we all learn and I, you know, that's a hundred person firm versus like a 5,000 person firm. So two pretty different experiences. And the primary way that architects learn is this sort of the good old fashioned, like master apprentice sort of thing, you know, which now that we've gotten into learning science and we have learning scientists on our team and, and advisors and so forth, that's actually the number one best way that humans learn is a master apprentice thing where you, you know, you get an assignment, you try to do it, you get a, you know, you get feedback and it doesn't work and you try it again. And that whole relationship is how people learn. As we all know, that's really time consuming and expensive, right? And so, I mean, for those of you listening, like for those of you who are sort of in the trenches doing the work, like how did you learn how to use anything in Revit, right? Everybody says it's, it's the guy sitting next to you or the girl sitting next to you, you know? It's like, oh, I didn't know you could do that with a Revit component or with a whatever. So I know that to be the state, uh, I suppose, of things. And I know, you know, whether you're in a tiny firm or a giant firm, there are just so many different flavors that uh, firms employ to think about this. Some firms, they don't care at all about your education or your licensure. Figure it out on your own and let me know when you're done getting licensed or let me know if you figured out how to get that promotion or learn how to be a project manager, whatever the case is all the way to the other extreme where, you know, uh, some big firms have really robust training programs, uh, kind of like you mentioned, George, right? Um, where they do have groups of people. I know many of our instructors who we've partnered with, I'm thinking of Brian DeYoung from SOM. He is their BIM guy, right? He's the guy, who, like, you, like you mentioned, who's he's doing training for their team. Anyways, uh, the point is that there's there's lots of different ways that firms handle it. And I think we all know that, you know, when you get out of school, very few architects know how the practice works. We really don't know the technical side of things. So there's a huge learning curve, especially for young people coming into the, into the profession. So anyways, from my seat, we see that as a problem in our profession that we're thrilled about working on. I mean, the colleges sort of have their thing under control, but for us, there's a great opportunity to provide uh, world-class education for architects across across the country, across the globe. You know, I've, I don't know. I always, I, I'll never forget it. There's sort of an interesting story that relates to this, which is 
back when I was at Gensler and um, you know, like I was mentioning earlier, you know, teaching at IIT and, and AI Chicago and so forth, that was when parametric design was really exciting and, and coming out of nowhere. So I sort of, uh, I don't know, I uh, participated in a couple conferences, uh, the Acadia conferences, Architects newspaper had uh, some conferences and they had, wor- both of them had workshops around uh, Grasshopper and uh, I was really excited about it and uh, participated in a, in a couple of them. This is probably like 2009, 2008. You know, there were some great guys in New York who were teaching some of those uh, Grasshopper workshops um, and I got really lucky and got to go and whatever. But I have to say that like, on the one hand, it was great that these guys were available and that I worked at a firm that could support me and send me there and I got to learn on the other hand, like I remembered my days when I was working, you know, in different firms and didn't have that kind of resources. And I was like, man, like if I was working in a, you know, any other type of firm, I wouldn't really have access to this. I could see that the tools that uh, had were sort of emerging and becoming more popular. It wasn't that they were making things go faster. They were like giving architects access to language of architecture that you don't otherwise have. So I was like, man, here's this huge new possibility in terms of what we could do creatively in architecture. And like only tiny group of people have access to it. That's nuts. So that's frankly, you know, that was part of the genesis of Black Spectacles from the beginning and why we started with software learning uh, to try to sort of democratize that, make it available to everybody. And I think the same thing now that we've, you know, we're a lot more mature as an organization and looking to advance um, our offerings for architects around, you know, teaching architects those, the technical side of things like how you do precast and masonry, whatever but also like how you move up in your career, you know, how do you, hmm. how you become a principal? You know, how many people do I know who, who want to be a principal now? Um, or how many, you know, when we were younger, how many people were trying to become a design director? Um, and there's no, there's no course for that, you know, but the truth is there's actually a lot of basic knowledge and skills that you need in order to do that. Well, there's no reason we can't teach that. And so again, similarly, our aspirations there with those professional kind of courses are really about leveling the playing field so that everybody has access to it. And what's cool, I think, about all that, which is kind of weird to talk about, but it's kind of aspirational, is I suppose if you were to, you know, provide you know, access across the country, across the globe to all that stuff, it should sort of like raise the tide, you know, in totally. terms of what people do and, and, you know, what's possible creatively, you know, the best way to solve uh, architectural problems and so forth. So this idea of just a democratization is so, so interesting and important today. Um, even in the context of some of the craziness that happened this week for those uh, that might have heard about like the financial markets and the craziness that's happening with like uh, between subreddits and Wall Street hedge funds. Just even today, I was in in the Monograph newsletter, I spoke a little bit about um, democracy, like YouTube and how financial information is now completely democratized. Before you would say it'd be very hard for someone and anyone in high school to learn what a derivative market is, how it works, and how to buy options, right? Now you have a whole new generation of kids that are learning these techniques in high school, in college, that are just as sophisticated at a certain point than even the so-called professionals. Yep. I think that is a really interesting kind of generational change that's emerging, mm-hmm. that because now you have access to this information because Black Spectacles puts out videos like this. It's not crazy to think that someone could pass their licensing exam in high school, right? Just like without having taken any of the design courses. 
Because the content itself, I mean, if we think about it, like currently professionalism is sort of defined by a test, right? Or a series of tests of knowledge. You're basically studying for that test is sort of the, the, the game in a way. Yeah. And so that to me is like really fascinating because then it's like, okay, well then what's next, right? I mean, if we can up-level everybody, then what's, what's left to be from a knowledge person? One could say, well, experience is definitely something that's irreplaceable. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think if the industry itself were, be, were to be more open with communicating, not just success, but also failure. And this is one of the things that like personally that excites me about, let's say, some of the content that we see in the tech industry is that everybody's so open to talk about how they failed, what lessons they learned from that, because then, you know, it's, it's a sort of service to the entire community, right? And then from there, it's like everybody's up-leveling. And when you do that, the game is different then. It's not about like, oh, me versus this other firm in our market. It's like, no, right. us against ourselves. How are we going to be better next year on our own terms? And I, I feel like what you're describing there really hits home on that front of like, you know, in the future, if if, if it wasn't such a big stretch, you didn't have to depend on that specialist in a firm for you to learn how to like do a precast concrete. You get a project, oh, there's precast concrete. Okay, I'm gonna spend some time, like go to YouTube or go to Black Spectacles and see like okay. what is the best best in class way to learn this, yeah. learn it. And then, you know, the next meeting you, you have, uh, you can speak to it. You have some understanding. So that's wild. I mean- It's, it's funny, man. You're making me think of the matrix, right? Right. When Neo's like figuring out what's going on, they're just like putting new, okay, we're going to teach you uh, Taekwondo, you know, uh, oh, yeah, seconds yeah. later, he's like, yeah, I know how to, I know Kung Fu. You know? And, and there's, I mean, there's studies that show that like a lot of it has to do with like the projected confidence that you have about something. So I think they've done research that like, if you look at an activity being done by watching that activity being done, you actually perform better than someone who had not seen that done. So like, uh, watching basketball reels is an interesting example of like the people that study basketball reels perform yeah. better over time because it's just like you, your brain is simulating in its own head what it would be like to do that activity. One of the things about power of the, the powers of black spectacles being available for people ultimately is that they don't have to wait for permission to do that, to basically like plug themselves into a matrix, right, to, to learn on their own, which is, is, is really powerful. It is. And I think what's interesting also is you know, and this goes goes back to the beginning question you had, you know, those days when we were running, you know, the Young Architects Forum, spent a lot of time trying to provide resources for folks who want to start their own firm. Um, and we held, you know, panel discussions, we sort of worked with what we had. But again, like imagine if, you know, same thing, like imagine if, like you said, it's one thing to pass the test while maybe you're in high school or even, you know, right after college or whatever, but then you could fly right into practice. And again, you know, most of us know that Seemingly, you have to have gray hair to be a, you know, to be a design lead somewhere. Uh, they, what do they say? You don't become a good architect till you're 60 or something like that. You know, wouldn't it be fascinating if uh, because of all this, you know, I was able to bring that down, you know, maybe in 50 years, you know, they'll say, oh, yeah, you don't become a good architect till you're 35 <laughs> or something like that, you know. And, uh, you know, oftentimes it's not even about if you broke apart the business of architecture, it's just there's different functions and you're just trying to find the best people for those roles. There's somebody on the team that should be the person that's talking to clients because they're the best at it. There's somebody on the team that's really good at, at, at just general design. They're just like, they're the designer and everyone should default to, to them in a way because it's just something that they have, right? I think if one were to approach it that way, then we completely live this myth of just like, you know, this, the individual architect and like all this other stuff. It's actually more of a team mentality. It's like, how am I going to build the best firm? 
the best team with the best people in order to deliver the best product to our and service to our customers. It's a different mindset, but then yes, there's the legality of signing the of like stamping the drawing set, mm-hmm. right? And with that, there should be standards. But at the same time, like does age really have to factor into those standards at all? I'm not convinced. I mean, it's clearly not in the private markets or public markets where you have CEOs that are running, you know, thousand, two thousand person organizations that are still in their twenties. It doesn't map over, right? The the assumptions that the industry sort of has, I think, have completely changed. And now it's like, okay, let's start fresh. What would it be like to design a firm if we didn't have the the baggage of the industry? Yeah. And that is like something that we get really excited about to sort of think about in some ways. Even you know, we're providing a, a what we believe to be a great product for the industry. But even then it's like thinking like, well, what else could we do in the future because we now have built what we've built so far. So, oh, uh, and that is my boss. Uh, (laughs) I think it'd be cool to just maybe uh, talk a little bit about, um, or maybe open it up to people here while uh, my daughter is is letting her opinions be known. Uh, If you want, there's a Q and A section where you can ask questions. And there's also a little chat window if you want to, Ask, ask some questions. I know there was a charming had sent me a question earlier, so I'm going to try to read it quickly. So architecture has been a profession where working remotely is not a normal practice. Uh, I am an architect turned UX designer and curious to learn if there are any efforts towards addressing the new normal of working in remote teams. Um, so we kind of talked a little bit about this, but I'm just very curious is like, maybe to put it back on, on a new mark, if you were starting an architecture firm, how would you then rethink your practice because of being able to work remote? That's a great question. And I have to confess, um, my head's in so deep with what we do that I haven't let myself fantasize about having an architecture practice recently. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the immediate thought that went to my mind is, you know, who, first of all, who are your clients or where do you think you're going to find your clients? So that's sort of the first, I suppose, question. And I suppose, do you want to, or could you serve them in a remote fashion? I mean, Architects don't make buildings. We make drawings of buildings, right? You know, theoretically, you certainly could. And so the question is really, do you have strong enough relationships, I suppose, um, and enough trust with the right people to serve them? So that would be the number one problem. Um, and it really goes to solving the business problem. So as far as I'm concerned, the, the operational stuff is all solvable. You know? you know, if you want a team that's scattered all over, you know, that's easy to figure out. It's not, I shouldn't say it's easy, but that's very achievable. So. For me, the, the question really goes to the business problem, which is at the end of the day, as I like to say, you know, in business, you're looking for, you're looking to, to find a problem that people are running at you with their hair on fire, flailing their credit cards at you saying, can you please help me solve this problem? In fact, they don't say it that nicely. They're screaming it at you. So again, that's for me, that's the first question in the potential idea of starting a practice. And if you can solve that, then the rest of it's pretty straightforward, I would say. So that's how I would think about it, I guess. Yeah. So from there, you can then define whether the business makes sense to be remote or not. If you're if you're serving community colleges in, for example, well, how do they find architects? Well, it's usually because they have relationships with them. All right. Well, do you have relationships with them? No. Well, now you go need to go create relationships with them, right? So, I would say, yeah, that's the key. That's actually the key question. Yeah, that's always good. I mean, starting with the who is the customer that you're ultimately trying to provide service to is super important. It does structure almost everything after that because everything that you're trying to do is basically tailored to address their yeah. their desires, right? Or their, their yep. needs. So 
I have a couple of questions if others don't have any questions. So I'm very curious, like what are the go-to tools that you're using right now to help you structure your business or collaborate with your team? Yeah, I mean, nothing fancy. We're using Google Apps, you know, which allows us to, you know, we use Hangouts 100 times a day. It's really easy. So Google is sort of the centerpiece of everything. And then, you know, we use Slack. And I have to be honest, that's probably 98% of like what we use. You know, we've done brainstorming in the past. A tool I've started to use that I really like is Whimsical. It's cool because it's kind of multifunctional. You can, number one, it's a essentially like a whiteboard you can share in real time. And you can use it for a few things. You can use it for kind of wireframing. You can use it just to sort of, you know, all the basic stuff, just throw a bunch of cards on a table, you know, on, on a board, just like post-it notes sort of. So uh, I find that to be really helpful. Whenever we've gone to the a point where we needed to brainstorm, like that example before when I was talking about how we were brainstorming about remote uh, working, that's what we used. Very cool. Yeah. And then I'll kind of hit you with the lightning round question, which I ask every every guest. What is the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you? The nicest thing? Whoa, I don't. That's a good question. Nobody's ever asked me that. <laughs> I don't know, man. We try to switch it up. Yeah. We get all sorts of answers. Oh God, I don't know. I mean, listen, I you know I have kids, and there's a million things a year they do that just sort of are amazing. So. You know, something just as simple, it's sort of funny, you know, I roughhouse with my son all the time or my daughter or whatever. And, you know, every once in a while you'll find yourself sort of like, you know, laying on the couch and, you know, suddenly they just start rubbing your head and I'm a bald guy, right? So even just little stuff like that, you know, yeah, that's uh, nice. is, uh, is really sweet. That's awesome. <laughs> so I guess, I guess that's my answer. <laughs> that's great. I love it. Um, and so uh, with that, I think we'll, we'll kind of wrap things up. Thank you so much, Mark. Um, yeah, man. For those that aren't aware, uh, Monograph is designed to help you see your business in real time. It's designed by architects for architects. Our founding team all studied architecture. So don't get stuck knowing where you're at on any given project. With Monograph, you can actually see your project status in real time, what the budget is, who submitted time, all that in one easy-to-use tool. Um, We even have something called the Money Gantt, which allows you to see in real time the budget progress along with the Project Gantt chart. Um, so all this is to help you have a better understanding of where your business is at. Um, like we like to say, never make decisions in the dark. So thank you so much, Mark, for joining me. Uh, thanks, everyone else. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.